Happy Lord's Day. Glad to be worshiping with each of you this morning. John chapter 4, we will be in verses 1 through 26 this morning. The woman at the well. Man, what a well-known passage and a beautiful passage. If you've never heard it, you're in for a treat because the word of the Lord is so beautiful. If you have, I pray that the Lord would allow these truths to settle in on you in a brand new way this morning. As you are finding your way there to John chapter 4, I wanted to share with you a little bit about my weekend. Um, This is the first weekend I've had in a little bit of a while to just spend some time with my bride, Um, and it was tremendous. Uh, So specifically what I want to share with you might sound a little bit odd. Uh, My wife, if you don't know, is a tremendous cook. Uh, She made the world's best chocolate chip pancakes this week, bar none. I don't care uh, if you think you make great pancakes. My wife made tremendous, not taking anything away from Chafin, who I know is a fantastic cook and dessert uh, baker, but uh, it was fantastic. Um, it was so good that I shared it on Instagram. Uh, I That's how you know, right? I think if, if that's the new official, if it's really good and you want people to know, you share it on Instagram. Now, I have a question for you. Husbands, be honest. Men who want to be husbands one day, take note here. If those pancakes were not good, what would have I said to my wife when she said, how are the pancakes? Husbands? Best I've ever had. Fantastic, great. Now, I am not advocating as a pastor to lie. I am saying to love your bride, to say that they're, they're great, sweetheart. Now, What I'm saying is, if there was no true satisfaction, there would have been no true adoration, no true wanting to tell the world about how great those pancakes were. I would have said, oh, babe, they're they're great. Why do I share this story? Because I believe this is what we will see in these verses this morning. True satisfaction, like I had true satisfaction in a meal that my wife made for me. True satisfaction will yield, will spurn true worship. Now, obviously not worshiping my wife, but adoring her and wanting the world to know about it. If you have true satisfaction in Christ, you will truly worship. I believe that Christ truly satisfies And when you believe that, you will truly worship. I think this is a core tenet of the Christian faith. Why do I say that? If you were to look up the Westminster Catechism, the first thing that they teach us in a catechism in our faith is a question and answer form. They ask the question, what is the chief end of man? What's our purpose? Why are we here? Why are we breathing? Why did God create us? And the answer to that question is this, is to glorify God, worship, but catch this, and to enjoy him forever. Are you satisfied in Christ this morning? Is he your all in all? Is he everything to you? Be my delight as we just sang. As you just sang those words, my soul satisfied in you. If those words 
came off your lips, but your heart was far from them. I believe the Lord has a message for you this morning to renew that satisfaction in him so your worship may be true. The woman at the well depicts this beautifully. She's going to the well to be satisfied with a drink of water. And Christ meets her there and tells her of the greatest satisfaction she could ever have. Join me in the reading of God's word as we see this truth. John chapter 4, 1 through 26. Hear the word of our God. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So when he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are saying, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have, the one you now have, is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must 
worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Father, in this interaction where you sent the son to talk with this woman, I pray that you would grant to us the grace of seeing ourselves as this woman. To see the beauty of your gospel. To see true satisfaction that will bubble up and well up in us as the Branch Church Milledgeville to true worship. Would you shape us through your word this morning? You're already preparing our hearts to receive your word. No word goes out from your lips that does not accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. Would we rest in that promise this morning? Would we be honest with ourselves? Would you remove our flesh? Would you remove any condemnation for those of us that are in Christ and allow gentle rebuke to settle in? but not to leave us there, but to encourage us towards faithfulness. So Father, we pray and ask all these things by your power alone. Amen. The first truth I believe we see in the first 18 verses is true satisfaction. Join me again in the reading of the first four verses and notice Christ's intentionality. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus was not baptizing, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. He was baptizing, his disciples were, and his notoriety was growing. He knew he had to leave the hustle and bustle of the city of Jerusalem, for he knew the Pharisees' desire was to Uh, belittle him in his ministry to crucify him eventually, and so he leaves. But notice his intentionality when it says he had to pass through Samaria. Now, if you were to look at a map, there is no had to pass through Samaria. He could have gone many different routes, but he chose to go through Samaria. This had is a had in the mission of Christ. He was intentionally going through Samaria. Jews would often walk in extra days, travel to go around Samaria because they looked at them as a sort of half-breed of Jews because they were brought back from the dispersion first by the Babylonians and they worshipped other gods outside of Yahweh alone. But Christ intentionally went there. I would argue that he intentionally went there to have this conversation with this woman at the well so that way John would recognize it and that John would record this by the power of the Holy Spirit that we would hear it as the church today. That you would hear this message of satisfaction alone in Christ today. His intent is always eternal. That you may believe that he is the Christ and in believing, have eternal life. Verse five, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. 
Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, six hours noon in the Jewish calendar. Notice Christ's humidity, humanity. He was weary. He was tired. He was truly God, yet truly man. I wonder if you come into this room weary this morning. Why was Christ weary outside of the physical nature of walking through the Galilean desert? Why was he weary? He had been ministering. He had been doing the will of God. True weariness. Many of you are truly weary from faithfully serving. And this is what the Lord's day is. It's the marketplace for the soul to be encouraged, to be reinvigorated, to be informed, to be sent back out. Why? To be poured out again, to come back in, and to be refreshed. Now, Christ is sitting at the well intentionally, knowing that this woman would come to the well. People in this culture would have to go to the well to draw. They didn't have to draw water. They didn't have running water in their house. I know some of you guys, uh, I know some of my relatives, didn't have running water in their own house until the past couple of years. Wild to think about, right? That we would have to go somewhere. It's a public arena, a public square. And Christ was going there intentionally to meet people. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Christ here is not just simply wanting water to be drawn from a well. He is not going so that way something will be drawn for him. He is going to draw someone to himself. Christ has drawn you unto himself. As Christ was intentional with this woman to go to her, to interact with her in her brokenness, Christ too has drawn you unto himself despite your brokenness. Your brokenness does not keep Christ at arm's distance. But he knows that and goes to you. I wonder, do we notice what Christ is doing with the seemingly downtime? He's been walking. He's on his way to somewhere else. He's in a city in between cities. It's in the middle of the day, his disciples are elsewhere, and yet he's sitting by the well, and yet what does he do with this seeming downtime? Matthew Henry says it this way, what we are to do with our seeming downtime. It is wisdom to fill up our vacant minutes with that which is good, that the fragments of time may not be lost. Are you satisfied in using your downtime for self? Or do you believe that there is true satisfaction in seeing every moment that you are breathing as a gift to you to give glory back to God? Do you think the person you run across in this city is a happenstance circumstance where you just happen to be talking to someone? Or do you see them as God-ordained moments to be filled up to truly be satisfied in Christ in every moment and that they may hear of the satisfaction you have. I was satisfied with pancakes and wanted the world to know how much more the eternal Son of God 
in the moment by moment opportunity to return glory to him. I pray that you believe that Christ truly satisfies, that in those moments that, yes, we can be tired and genuinely weary from work, from being a father, from class, maybe weary from people. Can I get an amen from that one? That was a hearty amen. We'll talk later. But do we genuinely see these moments as moments to find true satisfaction? Not in our own comfort, not in our own desires, but do you believe that there is true satisfaction in using those moments to glorify God and enjoy him forever? I pray that you do. This interaction with the Samaritan woman continues in verse nine. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. She's apprehensive. Do you sense that? She's asking these questions. There's apprehension that we have all the time. When we go into the world and we're interacting with people and we wonder, why is this person talking to me? Introverts, you probably feel that way often. Me as an extrovert, I probably freak people out. I just want to have a conversation with them. But there's much more than just that surface level of introvert, extrovert going on here. There's a cultural divide here because of the disdain that the Jews and the Samaritans have for one another. You see, even in the name Samaritan, it means keeper of the law. It's the name that they titled themselves. They believed that they were the true keepers of the law, not the Jewish people. That they worship not in Jerusalem, but on Mount Gershon, not on Mount Zion. Even Josephus, a first century, he died around 100 AD, living during this time, said this of the Samaritans, the foolish people who live in Shechem are not even a people. Do you sense the division? I bet you don't have to think too hard and grapple with too many feelings to sense that because we sense that in our culture often, don't we? How the world tells us that we're different or that there's cultural differences that should keep us apart when the gospel of Christ says those that were separated have been brought near together by the blood of Christ. We have far more in common in the Imago Dei and the blood of Christ than we have in anything else that would divide us into tribes or ethnicities. She's apprehensive and Jesus knows. And he gives her such a loving, gentle rebuke. Notice in verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If you knew the gift of God, salvation. If you truly knew that I am he, the Messiah, if you knew that I have come into the world to dispel the darkness, if you knew that I came into this world to draw you to myself, if you knew that I'm a gift, nothing you could earn, you would know who it is saying to you, give me a drink. What is he pointing out to her here? He would have given you living water. Most wells are drawn from a source, almost think of a pond. If you were to draw all the water out, it would be empty. 
But Jacob's well was wholly different, and I believe that's why God led Jacob there for this moment, for this illustration, because this well didn't draw from a pond, but an underground river source of continual water, a living water, because it was moving, it was active. What is Jesus saying to this woman here? That you're far more satisfied in temporal things, in fleeting things, than you are satisfied in Christ who will give you living water, that you will always be satisfied. That well will never run dry. Most commentators believe that he is hearkening back to the rebuke of Jeremiah 2.13 here. Jeremiah 2.13, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water, cisterns that we hewn out for ourselves is seeking to find satisfaction and replace the living water of God. We've rejected the living water and found satisfaction in so much besides Christ. Notice that the title of this header is true satisfaction. Therefore, I'm insinuating that there is false satisfaction. What are the cisterns that you have hewn out for yourself of false satisfaction? Approval. Of wanting the approval of a fleshly, sinful man opposed to the approval of a holy, perfect God. Satisfaction in temporal lust of the flesh, of looking at a screen or looking at that man or looking at that woman. And yes, your flesh finds satisfaction in that moment. Do not lie to yourself. It does find satisfaction, but not true satisfaction. And in that moment, you have hewn out for yourself a cistern that will only hold as much water as you can hold in your hand. And what happens to stale water that's not moving? It diseases. It grows bacteria that poisons your soul. What a gentle rebuke from Christ. What a loving rebuke to point out this truth. This is the purpose of our DNAs. This is the purpose of our MCs. Shoot, this is the purpose of our fellowship. To be honest about their own cisterns that we are trying to hide. To be honest with one another in saying, brother, sister, I see you find satisfaction in the things of this world and I love you. Come back to Christ, the true satisfier of your soul. Church, I believe that we must take hold of this truth. We must believe that Christ alone truly satisfies what have those temporal satisfactions led you to besides self-hate, self-loathing, despair, continual hunger, discontentment? What is the converse of this but joy, contentment, love, walking in the freedom of Christ? Amen. Praise the Lord. Notice the response. In verse 11, she doesn't get it. She doesn't get it. 
Verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. I'm not talking about water. The well is deep. I don't, I don't care how deep it is. I created the world by my word. I created you. Where do you get that living water? Notice she's skeptical. What better describes the soul apart from Christ than a skeptic? Skeptical that he is who he says he is, that the claims that he makes are true. I wonder whether or not you're in Christ or not, whether you still battle with skepticism. Perhaps some of you in this room are skeptical that God is who he says he is and he sent his son to die for your sin. And if that's not you, I wonder if you're skeptical that Christ truly satisfies. I would encourage you with the same fervor and zeal of which you seek to be satisfied in the other things of this world, if you will put by the power of God and the grace given to you in his Holy Spirit, that same fervor and zeal towards finding satisfaction in the Lord and abiding in Christ, of toiling in prayer, I would argue that you would find satisfaction. For scripture says, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Not satisfactions that leave you that are temporal and fleeting, but a bedrock for your soul. It's not just skepticism, but also cynicism. Verse 12, her response, are you greater than our father Jacob? Imagine saying that to Jesus. Are you greater than Jacob? Yeah, I am. He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. We'll learn that Jesus responds to this in such a gentle way at times. And then when we get later on into this gospel, we see the response of Christ when they say, are you greater than Abraham? Abraham, the patriarch of the Jewish faith. Are you greater than Abraham? And what is his response there? Before Abraham was, I am. I'm God. I wonder if you find yourself there in that cynical state. Cynical that I've tried. I tried to find satisfaction in Christ and yet I just can't maintain. I just, I don't really know if this is true. I really don't, I don't know if this is for me. People can sit down and some people can sit and have focus and read scripture. Some people can sit and, and pay attention in, in prayer, but it's just, maybe it's just not for me. Who do you think you are? When Christ promises that he satisfies and the way that he satisfies is through himself as the living bread and as the living water. I pray that rebuke would be one that you take to heart. And then when, if you're on that side of justifying, that you would receive that. But if you're on that other side of feeling discouraged, let me just ask you a question. Have you ever regretted praying? Have you ever regretted reading the word and said, you know, that just really, really shouldn't have done that? Have you ever regretted having an encouragement from a brother and sister in Christ? 
Have you ever regretted reading of the promises of God or the characteristics? Of, of course not. Of course not. Where does the cynicism and the skepticism lead us to besides despair? This is why I lovingly challenge you and lovingly encourage you if you're feeling weak. That satisfaction will come. One of my favorite sermons ever preached from this entire body was one that Pastor Bailey preached about the Valley of Baca. I think it was three summers ago when we were going through the Psalms. When we're in a desert, desolate place of wilderness, perhaps that describes your spiritual state right now. The goal for us is not to give up, to die in that desert, but is to dig deep and believe that the wellspring of living water will be found under even the most desolate of places. God's purpose goes out and accomplish, accomplishes what he desires. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Christ promises satisfaction here. That's why I can be so bold as to say, who do you think you are? And is so encouraging as to say, dig deep. Because he says, whoever receives this water, that water will become in him a spring a continual source. It's not by your own effort, it's by the wellspring of the living waters living within you that will bubble up to eternal life. This is why you must believe this promise of God, that he will satisfy you in the morning. He will satisfy you in midday. He will satisfy you in the evening as you receive from his hand all that is due to you, not because of your sin, not because of your righteousness, but because of him who wills to give you grace and mercy. True satisfaction will be found there. He's speaking this promise of satisfaction into this skeptical, cynical woman's life. and She does not understand she continues in the misunderstanding in verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I, will not have, that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She still is thinking of the fleshly, the outwardly. Christ is driving at the heart here. If you find no satisfaction in Christ, are you seeking satisfaction in the outward, in the external? And the lovely of the appealing to the eyes, the appealing to the flesh, the pride of life, or satisfaction for you found in the recesses of your soul, in the quiet place with your Father. One thing to note when she says, So I don't have to come here to draw water, store that away. Why here? Why this public arena? Why this well? Christ comes back to this in just a moment. Tuck that away. We'll come back to that here. Jesus said to her in verse 16, Go call your husband and come. 
here. Jesus is changing his tactics here. Why leave the living water illustration? Why, when she's talking about this living water and wanting it, why does he change his tactic? He understands that she does not perceive that he is the Christ, the living water, that she is spiritually dead and talking to a spiritually dead person about the glories of the gospel can bring them to life, but he is driving at the heart here. He's seeking to illustrate her lack of satisfaction here. Why here? Why here? The next three verses will illustrate that. Verse 17, the woman answered him, I have no husband. She misrepresents her present relationship. True but a misrepresentation. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Christ is exposing her heart, her lack of satisfaction in him that is trying to find satisfaction in multiple relationships. This is not Christ trying to out her in her sin, but to show her and to bruise her conscience. Why the here? Why the here? What shame would she be potentially walking in in such a small little town where everybody knows everyone's name and she must go to a public arena every day to draw water to live and she hears the whispers and the gossips and she sees the looks and she knows in her own heart whether or not she's in Christ or not because the Holy Spirit is consciously given to us all that we, whether we're in Christ or not, suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Why is Christ, why is Christ dealing with this? He's trying to touch the deepest places of her hurt and show her that even the deepest places of her hurt, that it's a longing actually of her heart for him the deepest places of your hurt where you're seeking satisfaction elsewhere are inward groanings of your spirit looking to be satisfied in Christ. You want to be married? You want to be in a relationship? What are you seeking else besides approval in someone else, knowing you truly and loving you fully? That's intimacy. That's intimacy found in God. Your deep pains and your hurt God, why did you make me this way? And the thoughts that you have and seeking satisfaction and changing your outward appearance or changing your behavior so that way other people will approve of you, what you're looking for is ultimate approval from the one who created you. Control. You want the power to change your circumstances. You're not satisfied with your present circumstance. What are you wanting besides the omnipotent God to say, I see you and I've got it under control? Christ is speaking here to her deepest unsatisfaction. What is she but uncontent? What are we to be but content in Christ? He's exposing her heart in this misrepresentation here. I think Christ is seeking to be ironic. He's saying that she is using a lie to tell the truth. I believe we do this often. 
we must not just take this as a deceit for the malicious intent, but I believe she's lying perhaps to hide that shame. There's a spectrum here of which we use the truth to hide our deceit. When someone asks you, how are you doing? And you say, I'm doing good. Misrepresentation of the state of your soul. Why? Perhaps for a good sake of saying you don't want to unload your burdens on someone. But the other half of it is, at worst, legalism. Wanting people to think that you actually have it together when the only thing holding you together is Christ. Why do we lie and hide in sin? Why did this woman lie and hide in sin? I think the primary source is that we are too satisfied in our sin. Sin does satisfy. Does it not? That's why it's so hard to kill it. This is why you cannot kill it by yourself, brother or sister in Christ who is hiding in sin. You can't. You need the fellowship. Why? Because the fellowship is united by the Holy Spirit as a household of faith. You would do well to listen and heed the words of Romans 8.13. If by the Spirit you kill the deeds of the flesh, you will live. But I believe it goes even deeper. Why do we lie and hide in our sin? If we're not nearly satisfied enough in Christ. We take the fruit of the gospel the rich nutrients that are designed to satisfy us and we'll but nibble on them when we gorge ourselves on the fruit of the flesh and we wonder why we walk around spiritually enunciated, why we're spiritually fasting, why we're exhausted, because we're taking in the very things that are not designed to help us be satisfied in Christ, but satisfied in ourselves. The Christian life is a race, is it not? It's a fight, is it not? If you're about to run or about to fight, you need to be well-nourished. You don't need to be pounding energy drinks before you go run a 4K. But the true water of Christ and that's all we do. Energy drinks, it gives you energy, doesn't it? For about five seconds, then what happens? Crash. What are you doing besides chugging energy drinks of the flesh and crashing if you're seeking to be satisfied in anything else besides Christ? I pray that you would believe that Christ truly satisfies what are the implications of this if we do this? If we truly find satisfaction in Christ and truly believe that, your taste buds will change. Christ will free you from the allurement of sinful satisfiers. When you partake of that rich fruit of Christ, everything else will turn to ash in your mouth. If you delight yourself in the richest affair, turn with me to Isaiah 55. I want us to see this. I want us to 
not just see this, but believe this, feel this. See what compassion the Lord has for us. For we all are thirsty, looking to be satisfied in Christ. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. That's the gospel, the wine and the milk, the good things that satisfy. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I am a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God, of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. If you've been gorging yourself on anything else that doesn't satisfy, come to the Lord. This gospel message is a free message that he gives to you that truly will satisfy. If you believe that, your taste buds will change. They will. But I also believe, if you believe that True satisfaction is found in Christ. You'll be freed from shame as this woman was walking in shame. You'll be freed from shame to walk in joy. You'll fight the good fight. What is the good fight but being satisfied in Christ? Every moment you see your flesh rage up and say you have no purpose, you shouldn't be here, you're sinful, uh, you're just not effective, people don't like you, push it all aside and fight the good fight of faith of saying, all of that may be true and more, but my Savior Christ bled upon Calvary and purchased me with the spotless Lamb of God, and in Him I am satisfied, not in myself. You don't need self-help. You need less self-help. You need to be reminded of Christ. In His perfection, your weakness is magnified, and in your magnification of your weakness, Christ is made strong. If you believe that Christ satisfies alone, you will not be satisfied in self. Please allow me a gentle rebuke for perhaps our collegiate body. I've had this conversation with my DNA and I believe based on their feedback, this is fair. doesn't mean just because you're not in college this could not apply to you either. Spiritual self-absorption is the tonic of this age. It's all about me, my interest, my desires, my truth, my belief, my wants. Who are you to tell me what I am, what I want? If you're satisfied in Christ, you can't look at yourself and be satisfied because when you look at Christ, you see a holy, holy, holy God. And you look at yourself and you say, I'm a wretch. It's 
spiritual self-absorption seeks to put aside the truth of the gospel that we are fallen and broken. Instead of looking intently in the mirror of the law and see us for who we truly are and see that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners, we want to put up in front of us not the law of the gospel but a silly house mirror, a fun house mirror that shows us in a wonky state but it's not so broken that we can't do anything about it and it's just fun and it's okay because everybody looks different. But the gospel, the gospel of Christ says you cannot be satisfied in yourself because you have fallen short of the glory of God. And you can only be satisfied in Christ because he has reconciled you back to himself despite yourself. Self-absorption is the cause for spiritual apathy. If you see yourself apathetic right now, not loving God, not loving neighbor, not loving this fellowship, not serving this body, not evangelizing this city. Spiritual apathy perhaps traces its roots all the way back to spiritual self-absorption because you can't think about God and you can't think about your neighbor and you can't think about this world when your mind is consumed with yourself. I can't. Think about you as your pastor and love you rightly if I just think about myself. This is why Paul encourages us in Philippians to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but have this mind among you which was also in Christ Jesus, who was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. Take on the form of a servant. Have that mind in yourself. What do servants do besides think about their master's will? Don't be satisfied in yourself. Because if you're satisfied in Christ, I believe too you'll be satisfied to leave this world at any moment. This world that wants to placate you into a spiritual state of self-apathy that wants to serve you, you'll be okay leaving this world at any minute because you know to live is Christ and to die is gain. You won't look at this world and just want to check out because of the state it's in. You want to check out because you're satisfied in Christ and if you go on living, it means faithful ministry for you here to serve your God, to be delighted in him, to be satisfied in him. And if he has nothing left for you to do, Lord, Maranatha, Lord, come call me home so I can be satisfied in your presence for all eternity. If that will be your satisfaction for all eternity, don't miss out on the foretaste now and being satisfied in him now. Because that's what's coming for us an eternity of looking at our Savior Christ and his Father God and saying, you are so good. You are so holy. I can't believe you loved me. I can't believe you bled for me. I can't believe you came and ransomed me. I can't believe that as I walk this earth that I spent even a moment thinking anything else could truly satisfy the way you can True satisfaction will spurn true worship. It will. This is what the rest of our text will show us this truth. As you can perhaps hear, 
in this pulpit from your pastor, worship of God. I believe this is what he desires of us. Notice the attempted theological pivot here of the Samaritan woman. Jesus is driving at the heart about her having five husbands and how does she respond with a pivot? If you're not familiar with a pivot, it's turning the conversation elsewhere. If you're not familiar with a pivot, uh, talk to my wife afterwards. She's really good at, at pivoting conversations. It's not a slam. It's sometimes very helpful when I don't know what to say. But notice what the woman does here, not as a service to the conversation, but as a service to herself, to take the spotlight off her soul. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Biggest understatement of the century. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, that's Mount Gershom, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. It's a theological pivot. She's turning that spotlight from the practical state of the soul to your spiritual intellectualism. How many of you guys have seen that in this body? You ask someone how they're doing. I don't, I don't mean what are you studying. I'm not, I'm not meaning what are you believing. When I say how are you doing, I mean how is your soul. You could ask a pointed question, how is your soul? And if you listen long enough, a heart that's dealing with shame or pride will turn the conversation to talking about God, not talking about what God is doing in them. I, you, we are guilty of this. That's why DNAs are the messiest thing in this entire body. That's why people don't want to be in a DNA. That's why people leave DNAs. Because when the spotlight turns to the soul, we can tend to run. Or when the spotlight turns to the soul and the gospel is not applied but legalism and condemnation, people rightfully run. We must not theologically pivot. It's not true worship. It's not true worship. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Notice he says where you will worship the Father. He's speaking to her as a future daughter. She will be saved. That will be the context of our message next week. He's driving at her heart. If she's truly satisfied in him, she will worship. If we are truly satisfied in Christ, we will truly worship. Again, if I'm saying there is true worship, there is false worship. It's what the text drives at in its conclusion of the next five verses. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. That's worship, is it not? but we'll see false worship. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. As for mentioned, the Samaritans did not just worship Yahweh as the only God, but as one that they had in their pantheon. They would worship the other gods of uh, the Sumerian lands. They would, if you were to read in 1 Kings 22, they still kept the high places and the altars to false gods. Jesus is saying, you, don't, you worship what you don't even know. This reminds me of the New Testament in Acts 22 where Paul is in Athens and they have a statue to the unknown God. 
that they want to be so worshipful, they want to be so inclusive that they're going to worship what perhaps they don't even know about. Jesus is driving at the heart here again that true worship is not ignorant worship. It cannot be. Matthew Henry says this of the verse, ignorance is so far from being the mother of devotion that it is the murderer of it. Ignorance cannot lead to true devotion. It's so far, it's not the mother, but the murderer of it. If you believe that Christ truly satisfies, you will truly worship. What I mean by truly worship, worship in truth. But hold on, there's more than worshiping in just truth. Verse 23, but the hour is coming, it is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Spirit. What is spirit worship? It's not run around like crazy, speaking in crazy languages, you think? It's not a just fervor but it's heart, it's true worship, it's love for God, it's emotion. Now, don't get me wrong, I know I can be an emotive guy. I'm not saying you must match my emotion. I'm looking at my brother here, Heath. He's one of the most stoic guys, but I've been in the DNA with him long enough to know when he was emotive, his heart there. That's what we're talking about. Again, True worship in spirit is not external, not on the outside. It's on the internal. But it is also in truth. This is why we as your elders seek to only teach truth and why we are so careful about what we teach, what we sing, what we affirm. Because the Father is seeking worshipers who will worship in spirit and truth. True worship of God is spirit and truth. There's ditches on both sides of the road. If we go too much into truth and miss out on the emotive, we become academia. We become a frozen chosen. We become known for more for what we're against rather than what we're for. We become more known for condemnation rather than exaltation of worship. Yet, on the other side is a ditch that we must not fall in. We can say that we love God and we can feel it and mean it and tears can even be there, but did not Esau even repent in tears and there was no repentance to be found? We can say that we love God and we do all these things that have true love for God that can feel like true worship of God. But what does Matthew 7, 7 say? Many will say on that day, Lord, Lord, did I prophesy in your name? Did I not cast out demons in your name? And you'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. We must walk the line of the gospel. The path is narrow. The gate is narrow. We in the love of God as we must walk in the truth. We're going to go after it here.